Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Alzheimer's Speaks. I'm excited for our conversation today. We are going to be talking with the Davos Alzheimer's Collaboration, which, which is a global network doing some pretty cool stuff. But before I go there, I also want to point out some upcoming shows that might be of interest to you. On the 20th, we are going to be doing an open mic. Anyone is welcome to join us for that. Um, that is a pre-record. It'll air on the 27th. And then on the 29th, I will be meeting with Donna DeVillers from Scotland, who's doing some very, very cool stuff. And on March 1st, I would really encourage you to join us to celebrate Naomi File since she passed away on December 24th. So with no further ado, let's introduce you to our guest. Well, Tim, I am so excited to have you with us today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Why don't you go ahead and um, tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Who is Tim? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, first, thanks so much for having me, Lori. I'm really appreciative. Um, so my name is Tim McLeod. I am the director of a program called um, the System Preparedness Program at the Davos, Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative. And I'm a social scientist, so I'm a community psychologist. And I have a background in sort of understanding how research about best practices and evidence-based programs gets translated into the real world. Um, and so I've, uh, you know, my academic work was in mental health and uh, I spent a number of years working in industry and I've been working in the dementia space for um, the last three years or so. And so, you know, I think just broadly, my team at Davos, um, we like to think of ourselves as really helping to make sure scientists who are discovering new treatments or interventions or diagnostics, that their work is able to be translated and accessible in the real world quickly. And so if you think of the analogy of a, a scientist making really fast trains in, in the sense of discovering new diagnostics, et cetera, it's also true that health systems or train tracks need to be able to run those trains and be in really good shape to, to work a high-speed train. And so you know, our team really spends a lot of time thinking about um, running studies that, you know, sort of understand, are the tracks in good shape or are they broken? And if they are broken, in what ways? Oh, fantastic. I have dealt with a lot of different trials and a lot of people involved in different trials. And um, one of the things, you know, the public says is how confusing it is. And I know that um, clinical trials have been trying to adapt. So they're a little more personable and um, they really want information at the end of the trial of what were the results, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and sometimes they don't, they don't get that. They don't understand that. So it's nice to, it's nice to hear that. And I love that you've got that mental health background because this is, a, you know, it's an emotional disease and there's a lot of wear and tear 
And people need to understand that process um, very well in order, I think, to get best results for all parties involved with that. So thank you for what you're doing. Um, Before I dive into our questions, I always ask all my guests if they've been personally touched by dementia. And it doesn't make any difference what your answer is. It just kind of gives people a little background. Yeah, I would imagine that for a lot of your guests, they have been, and and I'm no different. Um, so I lost two uh, grandparents to dementia. So, um, you know, the the one that was uh, a little closer to me, uh, Gus, was my uh, maternal grandfather. And so um, we lost him when I was about 15. And uh you know, he, uh, I, I was very close to my grandparents, Adele and Gus, when I was a kid. And um, my grandfather had a stroke in his 40s, um, did a lot of re- work on rehab and movement, um, but still sort of had some, you know, pronounced symptoms of that stroke. And um, after my grandmother passed away, he started to sort of show some issues with memory and cognitive function. And then, um, you know, fairly quickly went into um, to a a dementia diagnosis. And, uh, you know, I was a kid at that time and it, uh, it really had a big impression. I mean, I was very close to him and it was really challenging feeling like, you know, losing a grandparent who, uh, you know, had significant personality changes and, um, you know, also being 14 or 15 and recognizing like the care that he was getting wasn't great and seeing the, dynamics in the family and the difficulty of my mom being a primary caregiver to him and, you know, how hard the agitation was. So, um, you know, certainly it was something that I spent a lot of time around when I was a teenager and um, I've worked in healthcare generally and in mental health, but when I had the opportunity to work, you know, full-time on dementia, um, certainly my my memories of my grandfather and, and the experience of my family was a really big motivator. Oh, interesting. I had a similar experience when I was 13. I had a great aunt who was living in a nursing home and I'll never forget. I'll never, ever forget the day I walked in and she didn't know who I was. She knew my mom and she knew my brother. And I was so livid that she knew my brother because my brother could (laughs) care less. We had to drag him there. You know, he didn't want to go see Aunt Mary and I just adored her. And I was, I was just crushed. And I remember screaming out, I don't want anyone to ever feel this. And it's kind of funny when you look back at your life. I was told one time to look back at your life in five-year increments and who were the most important people and what were the most important events. And it's like, boy, it just places me right where I am so significantly. And um, those memories and those relationships matter um, more than I think a lot of people think, you know, how they impact our lives. Uh, Yeah. I totally agree. I mean, you know, I think as an as an adult and like a scientist looking back on my grandfather, I also just am able to see it really differently as well. Like he, you know, what we know about dementia now, um, he had really obvious risk factors that just weren't caught. I mean, he'd had a stroke. He had diabetes for a period of time. Um, you know, when my grandmother died, he was socially very isolated. And so, you know, all big red flags that had they been managed different in primary care or or by a capable physician, um, you know, life may have looked very different for him. And and so, you know, I I always think about um, with a lot of changes and just what we know about today, it's really important, you know, that care providers and in primary care 
um, it, you know, if we're really able to to help people and identify issues early, um, you know, I just think about that 13 year old version of myself and, and what might have been different for our family if, if that were true. Oh, for sure. I just had a woman on and she has a podcast called Hello Hot Flash. And it just resonated <laughs> with me because, you know, my mom was misdiagnosed for 10 years and she was just told it was, you know, she was going through menopause. And it definitely oh, wow. wasn't. And then when you mentioned your dad or your grandpa, you know, when your grandma passed away, that loneliness and that depression, I mean, they mask one another so easily yeah. you know, and pulling back. And, you know, we saw that with my mom too, but we, we had no idea. I mean, no one even said the word dementia. They were barely even mentioning the word Alzheimer's, you know, because she lived with the disease for 30 years and she's been gone since 2014. So Lots of change, but we need a lot more change yet to go. That's that's for sure. Well, why don't we start out with why you think it's important to have these cognitive screenings? I mean, I know I know why I believe brain health is important, and I think I think we're seeing more discussion about it. But I don't. I personally don't think the public really feels it yet. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll I'll answer it in a, in a couple different ways. I mean, you know, just in general terms, when you go to a primary care doctor, the brain is the one sort of organ in the body that primary care is really uncomfortable dealing with. Like we often, you know, we maybe have screening for depression in some age groups, but generally we're not talking about brain health with care providers, which is sort of absurd when you think about it. And you know, if you think about cognitive complaints and you thought about them using breast cancer as an example, I mean, if you went into a physician's office and said, I, I'm feeling a lump on my breast and they were like, well, let's just see what happens. Like that would not be appropriate as care and, and cognition is, you know, and brain health is, is that that's the circumstance today. And, you know, I want to be clear that I do not fault primary care providers. They are busy they do great work. They have a ton of stuff to do. Um, and the the policy backdrop is is complicated for, for why they don't um, talk about brain health as, as often as other things. And we can get into that later. So I think number one, it, you know, it, it's just not talked about in primary care and it should be. I think the second thing is, you know, our understanding of dementia has really changed in the last 15 years where it was common 15 years ago, 20 years ago to think about dementia as um, a disease of aging. I think we know enough now to recognize that actually dementia is a brain health issue with its with a unique etiology. And, and so, um, you know, we should really think about it over a longer period of time. And we actually know that there are a lot of risk factors associated with dementia, we know there are things that we can do to reduce those risks, particularly in, in middle life. Um, and we also have emerging treatments. And research is actually fairly supportive that even in the absence of treatments, it's really valuable for people to, to understand their cognitive status early so that um, in the event that they do have something like dementia, they're able to make plans with family and loved ones to talk about their wishes to um make sure that they've, they've had time to make legal arrangements and, and that sort of thing as well. So I think there are a number of really good reasons why cognitive health is really important or brain health and, and why it's really worth um, having conversations with, with our primary care providers about our brain health. 
Oh, I so agree. I mean, I think of even when you use the example of breast cancer, no one ever thought, you know, a male could get breast cancer. And then all of a sudden you had these little unicorns where there was a few men getting breast cancer. And it was a, it was a bigger issue than just, uh, you know, men or women. Um, and there are so many different ways from that your brain can be affected from a car accident to a, a football game, you know, and, or a hockey game to, you know, the, the, the aging process, you know, the mechanics of our body and all of the different lifestyle choices that we make. And, you know, some, and then we've got hereditary things um, thrown in there as well. So I, I too think it's important for us to look bigger scope. And I think we have to have those discussions way, way earlier. And I loved that you talked about, you know, letting people know what, what are your wishes? There's such a fear factor, you know, when you bring that up, that end of life is right around the corner. So don't discuss that. It's like, it's just smart living. Yeah. To be able to have these conversations, there isn't anything that we should be afraid of. We all like control over our life. Why would we let it go when we're ill? Yeah. I think that we often sort of underestimate the degree to which people want bad news. Not that they desire it or want it, but that they're that it's maybe helpful. And, you know, our colleagues at AARP have done really good research that show sort of what family doctors think their patients want to hear about um, their cognitive health. And, you know, they their assumption is, it's very scary and, and they're, they don't want it disclosed to them. And then what patients actually want or what older adults want, and they actually do want it now. And so that Delta is, you know, fairly sharp. And then, you know, similarly, some of our colleagues at Indiana University have done really good research showing um, that on the other side of, of sort of a disclosure of a dementia diagnosis, um, actually, you don't see the sort of depression and suicidal ideation that that some people may assume is there. So I, I think we need more research. But of the, the data that I have seen on this, it, it, it does seem like there is a compelling argument for, for people really wanting to understand their cognitive health. Well, I think they want to know, but they also don't want to be unsupported and they don't want to be ostracized and pushed away. Yeah. And, and I think that's been... You know, one of my big complaints about dementia and how we've um, dealt with it over the years is we have pushed it out there using the fear factor to raise money. And then we wonder why people are scared, you know, to get a diagnosis (laughs) or to go in. And it's like, well, we're not exactly, you know, painting a pretty picture for them. And I've been amazed, you know, I stepped into this space in 2009 as a frustrated daughter wanting to change the world from crisis to comfort. That's kind of my tagline um, when it comes to dementia care. But the social supports that are available are massive, but nobody knows they're out there, yeah, including the doctors. And yeah. so if we can get that impression changed or, you know, one of the things that I do is called dementia chats and I facilitate a conversation with the true experts, those living with the disease. And we just did um, a program and I haven't edited it yet, but it was, um, what what life is like 10 years after diagnosis and some of them were close to 20 and they're still on zoom they're still you know very engaged they're still purposeful but that is not an image that is lifted and is seen um as much as it needs to be 
And so I think we're in exciting times in terms of changing those impressions of a who gets it because as we know there's kids that are are getting diagnosed as well and people are shocked at that one Um, and there's many younger people uh, getting this in their you know 40s and 50s when everyone's thinking it's 70s and 80s or you know 10 or 20 years past me so I don't have to worry about it so there's there's just so much to teach and so much to learn um, through the disease in terms of our acceptance and um, how we can support one another. Because we all have something goofy with us that'll probably scare somebody if we let it out of the cage. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all hiding something um, if we know it or not, because we're you know, there's that shame and no one should ever feel ashamed when they're ill. I mean, it's not like it's controllable. Yeah, there's lifestyle choices that maybe we could have made that would have made it different. But we don't know that for sure. You know, um, we, yeah. you know, so there's just so many factors involved in this. And so I, you know, I love that, you know, part of what you're talking about anyways, what I'm picking up on is, we need to have an open, honest conversation about all of this because people will accept a diagnosis if they if it's told to them in common terms, you know, and if it's not just um, I think one of the things that I hear and you've probably heard this, too, is people get a diagnosis, they get a prescription, they get another appointment as they're walking out the door, they're told and get your fears in order And they're thinking that they still only have maybe five to seven years to live. And so many people are living longer out there and, you know, putting things in perception, uh, um, in perspective of actualities and giving them support. So they're not just sitting out in the car and crying for two hours, Um, you know, feeling that support immediately. I, I think of, again, going back to breast cancer, I go in for a mammogram and I get a lavender washcloth and I mean, there's <laughs> calming things and there's music. And I mean, it's just the whole environment is to calm us down. I don't see that when people go to a neurologist office, you know, or yeah. the primary doctor, we're still going, oh yeah, your blood pressure is a little high. You have white coat syndrome. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's very interesting. How do you think we make the screening more accessible? I mean, I know they're, they're supposed to be doing this at a certain age in the clinic and things. How do you feel that's going? Yeah, so I think there's sort of two ways to look at this. So one is, um, I loved your example of oncology. And when you go to an oncologist's office, it's a really different experience than it was 10 years ago. Like there's a lot of thought about what your experience of the office is, what you may need after a difficult clinical conversation. And I think, you know, the dementia space and and sort of cognitive health um, lags really far behind oncology. It's sort of where oncology was 20 years ago, and we're still building capacities and skills and systems to be able to just, um, you know, screen and diagnose and and provide appropriate um, pathways into both treatment, but also risk reduction programs. And so, you know, I'm I'm optimistic that we don't need to wait 30 years to catch up to oncology and, you know, we can start to move sooner. And, you know, similarly, um, 
the really big challenge I think with dementia right now is that often to get a diagnosis or, you know, in, in the vast majority of cases, it requires seeing a neurologist and there just aren't enough neurologists. And, you know, I live in Canada where this is particularly pronounced. I mean, the, um, a lot of the research about how long it takes to see a neurologist in Canada is, you know, like up to six years, which is wild. Holy cow. I thought the six to nine months here in the U.S. was bad. Holy cow. Six years. I also want to introduce you all to Q-Blocks. They have been absolutely excellent to deal with. They have been in business for 18 years and they serve the globe. I can't say enough good things about this company. I've had a lot of bad experiences. I don't know about you with tech companies. They have made a very complicated process very easy and their staff is so kind, so polite, so respectful to work with and you know, when I am frustrated and ready to pull my hair out, they just smile and tell me everything's going to be okay. And they really are just on top of the communication, which alleviates so much stress as an owner when you're dealing with tech issues. You can get a 10% discount. Visit them at QBlocks at C-U-E-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com or you can email them at letstalk at qblocks.com. For that 10% discount, just put Lori, L-O-R-I, in the inquiry form. And again, I don't think you'll be disappointed. I surely haven't been. I, I can't rave enough about this company. And that's kind of rare these days. Yes, our, our colleague Zarn Matke did a paper where he did an analysis and it is a year's long wait. Um, and so... You know, when you think about dementia care and screening, you know, obviously, if we don't have enough neurologists, one of the ways that we can manage that is by only advancing patients to neurologists that should really see them. And so understanding, you know, using primary care or other a pharmacy or any non-specialist care is really important because it helps us sort of manage um, the capacity of neurologists and, you know, even if we started training more neurologists today, it would take them 10 years to get through school, et cetera. And so, it, you know, we probably need to do both things, but actually getting to neurology through primary care is so important. So in the same way that you could go to your primary care physician and say, I'm feeling a lump on my chest. What, what do you think we ought to do about it? And they would have some tests and guidelines that they'd be able to assess that and sort of figure out if if there was a problem, and if so, who you should see about it, I think we we ought to get to the same place with dementia and primary care. And so, um, you know, I think today there are a number of things. So I think scientifically there, there still is debate about um, the utility or the usefulness of doing screening of dementia. And so I think there's a view that some people have that there's nothing we can do for patients, even if we give them a diagnosis. And I think increasingly, the, only from the point of view of science and evidence, I, I think that that view is becoming out of step with what we know about the disease and what we know about risk reduction and emerging treatments and um, so on and, and sort of participation in clinical trials, et cetera. Um, so that's one piece of it. Another piece is it, change in medicine is hard. And so, you know, when you want... On the face of it, it's very frustrating saying, why can't my doctor just ask me about my brain health in an appointment? And 
the reality is medicine is complex. Every moment of a physician's time is typically built and it's built in systems. And so it's challenging to figure out how we have um, backend systems that physicians are using just to account for their time. Finding a standardized test that a physician would use is another thing that's challenging. There's a lot of different tests and it can be hard for physicians to, to pick which one. Um, and then I think um, additionally, this is something that's brand new for physicians who are already overburdened. And so making it easy for them and their teams to do it is, is really important, appreciating that it's another, um, it's another ask of their time. And, and so probably a world in which physicians are talking to everyone over 60 about their cognitive health may not be so feasible in the near term. They just may not have enough time to do it. But for example, understanding amongst their patients who may be more at risk than, than other people and then asking a few questions in an annual visit about brain health may be something that is quite feasible. And so there are a lot of barriers, but I think the good news is we're seeing a lot of new tools like digital cognitive assessments, for example. So this would be something like an iPad that you'd be given where you might answer some questions and do something like drawing a clock and a nurse or a medical assistant could give you the tablet. The scoring is built into it. So no one needs to go away and, and physically do the scoring. And the tablet may actually help with medical decision-making for a physician as well. And given it's a new practice area, that really matters. And so I think there are new things like these digital cognitive evaluations that actually are really hopeful and do solve a lot of the problems of, of getting this um, regularly in primary care. Yeah, I think too. And, you know, insurance has like sliced and diced. So you have 10, maybe 15 minutes, you know, with your, with your physician and they've cut out that chit chat. Yeah. Such good relative information was, was had. Yeah. And, and everything has gotten so computerized so that I think there's some pluses and some minuses to that. So like, if you ask me, have people in your family had Alzheimer's? I could say, yeah, my mom did. But depending on what type of person I am, am I going to give you more information? Or am I going to be like, no, you're on the stand, just answer the question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, because my mom upon autopsy also had Lewy body. And she also had Parkinson's, which we didn't know. You know, and so what information are we really pulling out? Um, many families I talk to, um, and I hear this constantly, we know it runs in our family, but that's not what they called it, or it never got diagnosed, but all these symptoms were there. And a lot of times we're not asking those questions in terms of, because those can give us hints, because as you said, the system changes slowly. And we don't call it hardening of the arteries anymore. We don't call it going senile. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes people get, you know, kind of scared going to the doctor and they don't think big picture. They kind of, their, their head kind of shrinks and go, okay, I'm going to answer these questions. And that's it. And then they're holding back information they don't even mean to hold back because the question wasn't open-ended because, and my guess is because they want a black and white answer. Yeah, this isn't always so black and white. And to me, part of the screening process, I agree, the doctors don't have time and it would be nice to have 
a social worker. I mean, I've seen that on, on clinics, um, especially in neurologist uh, clinics where they have a team, you know, and they'll have the psychiatrist and they'll have or uh, a psychologist and they'll have a social worker and then they have a caseworker as well on top of that. And everybody's there grabbing different information, but working as a team to be able to hand it off to the doctor. But then with COVID and the lack of staff, so many of those collapsed. Yeah. And people were so excited to have this team. I mean, they really felt cared for and they felt lifted and then they just felt abandoned. Yeah, I think we certainly, I mean, so we ran a a large study where we um, had 19 sites in 12 countries, including um, 10 or so in the U.S. And so we were doing digital cognitive assessments or other diagnostics in primary care. And I think we really observed, you know, um, our goal was to understand how do these new technologies actually make it into routine practice? What happens when you put them in real health systems and not just academic studies? And teams that worked closely together and had roles like brain health navigators, for example. So there was a dedicated person who was able to paper over some of the silos that patients really feel in a healthcare system, seemed to be really powerful at making sure the right thing was happening at the right time for a patient and making it just actually feasible for a physician to do this. And so I think the quality of a clinical team is really important. Another thing that I think was really inspiring is, um, you know, my mom was a nurse, so she spent a lot of time in frontline care and my dad was a clinician as well. And, you know, I would, when I was a kid, I noticed they both worked in mental health and my mom was often forced to implement these clinical programs that just after work, she would complain about them. And so that was part of the fabric. And um, it's interesting seeing health systems that plan in isolation and then push down a mandate versus those that are really good at going into clinics and talking with staff about, it's important that we do this for these reasons. How do you think we could make this work? The minimum set of what we want implemented in the clinic is a digital cognitive evaluation how you get that done, we're really interested in what may work for you. And, you know, we had one site in Indiana, um, Indiana University and Indiana University Health, who were really good at engaging their sites and where for a lot of sites, it took, you know, 12 months plus of planning to get to see their first patient. IU did it in something like three months. And a lot of that was just their ability to engage frontline staff who really understood the reality of their clinic, but also what their patients need was, was really, really inspiring. And so I think that's a real lesson for, for, for both health systems, but also clinical practices in terms of getting this right is, you know, frontline staff are going to need support and help to do this and barriers removed and and engaging them, I think is a really powerful way to um, get these programs up and running quickly. Yeah. I read an article today or just really the first couple paragraphs of it. And it was talking about, are you, how did they say it? Are you in engaging people for their time or are you engaging them from the heart? Yeah. And I think when you engage from the heart and you kind of pull in that emotional, I call it emotional based training where people feel the need to make the change, they step into it other than just memorizing. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what's been handed down. There's just a black and white 
powerful, powerful change and putting the, the employee in a position to really help where I think we've gotten so task oriented and so removed from the everyday tasks that we're doing. We don't feel we don't we well we don't feel and we don't always see the outcomes when and this way they're they're part of that process um, to me that is is life changing i also know in wisconsin they have i can't remember who it is through but it, it's i want to say it's through triple a and i might be mistaken but they have in every county a specialist for dementia so mm-hmm. You know, if you've got any questions about it, you can go to that person and I believe diagnosed or not, and they will help you through the process, get you you connected. And so what I I love about that is that person is outside the healthcare system. And uh, to me, that's critical because it engages the community as a whole. And the medical model is just a piece of it. Yeah, for sure. And to me, that is that is a really important um, one question I wanted to ask you uh, was, you know, there's this new blood test out. And yeah, um, what are your thoughts on that? Because I have a lot of peers out there that go, we they really don't like this because they feel it's just another way to push pills and it's not necessarily going to serve the people in terms of what they need uh, from a holistic whole person type aspect and can have some effects on their insurance and pre-existing conditions. And I mean, the list is pretty lengthy of what they're worried about with that. Yes. I'm very sympathetic to that view of the blood tests. And I, I know it's a very personal choice for people. I mean, my view on the argument for blood tests is really um, against the backdrop of there are a lot of people for whom even if they do great risk reduction, even if they catch things early, genetically, environmentally, they may be in a position where they develop dementia. And right now it is so hard for those families and for those patients to go through the journey of months and months and months of uncertainty. And a lot of that has to do with accessing neurology. And so I think um, when we talk about blood tests, what blood tests can do in the near term is, is just a rule out test, right? And it, it just tells us, um, is there something that indicates Alzheimer's disease in this blood sample? So that would be something like amyloid or tau. And if we are seeing that, there's and there's a probable chance that we may see a cognitive impairment due to one of, um, due to, to tau or, or amyloid, um, should we actually go see a neurologist um, to get a lumbar puncture or um a PET scan or to test for reversible causes, which we might do in primary care and taken across the level of a a large community or a state, it's really helpful in making sure that the people who really need neurology are able to access it at the right time. And so I think if you view it as an individual, certainly the choice to do it or not do it will look one way. And I think if you look at it at a population level and understanding across a lot of people, what will help to make sure the right people get the right care at the right time. I think blood tests could be a really powerful tool. Mm -hmm. Uh, Having said that, I mean, we need to continue doing research about it. And to be honest, like in our studies, we've used blood um, in primary care 
and it's challenging to get it into the workflow. And so I think, you know, we have a lot of ground to cover to making sure physicians are actually equipped and ready to, to do blood tests, particularly in primary care. Um, and so, you know, a lot of that has to do with education. Some of it has to do with the logistics of labs themselves um, and, and making sure that that stuff works well. And, um, you know, it's it's challenging. It's an area that's uncomfortable for physicians and, and needing to disclose the results of a blood test. It's new to them. They may not be used to doing blood tests of that nature in their practice. And, and they really do need really good pragmatic and practical education resources to be able to do that well in a way that that is going to work for patients and families. Yeah, I, I think the other thing is the whole, you know, amyloid tau, you know, there's there's been some cases that say that's been disproven. That's not a that's not a for sure that you're going to go forward with this, you know, especially like after the the nun study and things. Um, but the other thing that that scares me with this, and I want to cure more, just as much as anyone else, but I but I want care. Yeah, you know, and if we all of a sudden up the ante, and I think people can see this coming, where all of a sudden the blood test is a mandate, just like the screening is. Yeah, people don't really have a choice. Yeah, um, you know, with that, and there's no support. What good are we really doing? I mean, maybe on a on a scientific level we are, but for our human beings living with this. If we don't match it with support, I think we're doing a disjustice in some ways with that. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I'm sorry to put you on the spot. But no, no, no. I, I agree. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, so I think with blood, it's important to recognize and remember it's always just going to be one part of a broader um, diagnostic process. And so I think the idea that in the near term, we would see a blood test being something that you would do and a clinician could make a firm diagnosis. I just think we're very far away from that. Um, and so I think it's always important to remember it as one piece of what a clinician may need to make a determination about the next step for you and, and your loved ones. Um, I, I agree with you about post-diagnostic support and making sure that um, people are supported in pursuing treatment, if that matters to them, if that's important to them, to pursuing clinical trials, if that's of interest or important to them, or also um, undertaking risk reduction programs. We know that um, smoking cessation, controlling metabolic health, hypertension, all of those things, loneliness, have big implications for you know the, um, the way that people will or the rate at which people may face cognitive decline. And, and so I think that that stuff is important. Um, but I, you know, I, I agree with you. Like, you know, we started talking about brain health and, and cognitive health not really happening in primary care. And we need to change a lot of parts of medicine to, to do this well and to make sure we have good care in the future. And so I, I think it's one of those things where, um, we need screening. We need to make sure that we're doing this in primary care. And we also need to get better at providing resources to people in terms of post-diagnostic care as well. And, and if those things can happen in lockstep, you know, that's incredible. Um, and, and just trying to make sure that the timing and pace of those two things move together, I think is important. I'm going to mention one thing that I've kind of been on my little, um, 
stand about lately because maybe you can do something with it with with your organization but uh, you know we have all these clinical trials and you know there's the placebo there's the actual one I would really like to see another one added on to that. And that is with social support for both of those. So social care, if it's an art class, if it's a choir, if it's a memory cafe, one, I think you would draw more people into your clinical trials mm-hmm. with that, but to see what kind of impact that has. And, you know, I've been told pharma doesn't really want to do that because that's not their niche, but, I think to me, I think that's where we're going as a, as a public, as a society of what people want, and they don't want to pick one or the other. They want to see collaborations between the two and to yeah. feel wholly supported. And so just thoughts on that. I know it would cost. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, uh, my background's in mental health. So I think the the area that I know very deeply is is our conditions like depression and schizophrenia and um and so forth. And so I think that we are still learning a lot about the disease course of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, and we're still really understanding at a basic science level what we can do in different treatments. And I think that that's really important. And in the mental health space where we've been treating in the community for a much longer period of time, you know, sort of in the seventies where we saw a real shift from treating people in institutions to in the community. We also saw a real shift in what we considered treatment away from just psychiatric drugs to include things like what you're talking about. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. I think, you know, similarly in the dementia space, as we learn more, as we get better at just, making sure people have access to a diagnosis should they need it and are routed appropriately for treatment, should it be appropriate, also starting to bolt on and build and broaden what we think about as, as appropriate therapy. So I think if we look to, to the mental health space as, um, as sort of an analogy here, I, I think as we continue to go forward, that, that stuff is very important. And um, I, I share your view. It will be exciting to see that happen more. Wonderful. Um, let's talk a little bit about why um, DAC was created and what were what were the problems that you were really aiming to solve? Yeah, for sure. So um, our name, so the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative is a reference to Davos, where every year the World Economic Forum convenes and has a, a big meeting. And so in 2020, um, the Alzheimer's Collaborative was was created and convened there. And so um, there is a history at the World Economic Forum of health initiatives, more in the infectious disease space. And I think what the World Economic Forum is able to do really well is bringing together the public and the private sector. Um, and so, you know, in the last decade, you've seen individual governments make commitments to frameworks that they want to advance towards dementia. But of course, governments are only in power for four years. And it's not always the case that um, the contributions of the private sector are lined up really well against the objectives of those frameworks. And so the goal of Davos was really to connect those two groups. Um, And so there's sort of three things that we're working on. So one is about clinical trial infrastructure. So clinical trials are you know, really expensive and they take a long time. And to some degree, our ability to find really good treatments is is dictated by how quickly we can run clinical trials and, um, you know, getting enough people. And so 
that's part of it. Um, a second component is a lot of what we know at the basic science level about Alzheimer's and dementia is really based on groups of people, which scientists call cohorts, um, that are from Europe uh, or North America. And so we know that, for example, um, in Black communities or in Latino communities, amyloid may express differently. Um, and so if you have an amyloid test, it, it may work differently in those communities. And if we don't um, actually have large cohorts of people who are representative of a global population, our ability to find appropriate treatments and diagnostics is really going to be hampered. So it's really important that we expand um, the, the view on, on uh, where basic science is coming from and, and make sure that that represents a global population. And then the third thing is system preparedness. And so our view was there are a lot of really great philanthropic efforts to um, incubate novel treatments and diagnostics, um, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. And those, those efforts have been really successful. We've started to see a new generation of diagnostics. Um, you know, there's new disease-modifying therapies that are becoming available. And so the thing that needs to be true for, you know, as those scientists are successful is that health systems need to be able to to take those things and actually give them to people. And because those studies that that where they find those treatments and diagnostics tend to be really tightly controlled, um, they often don't resemble the real world. And so the view of our team is really, how do we run these studies to really understand the train tracks of global health systems um, and identify what are the common solutions that innovative systems are doing to overcome some of the challenges and where do we actually need to sort of advocate for real change in health system operations or in medicine um, to make sure that patients and families have access to these things in, in real time? Are there some new tools that you're seeing coming into the clinics and, and doctor's offices to, to help with those three areas? For sure. So in the, the program that I mentioned on early detection, um, earlier. So we used blood-based biomarkers and some of them in primary care. We used digital cognitive assessments. So things like, um, you know, tests on tablets that, that would be used in primary care. And then we had a number of um, other programs that used uh, things like a product called Redispec in Canada, um, where it will take a picture of the eye and use AI to um, correlate the image with amyloid and, and sort of give an indication of whether a cognitive complaint may be related to a dementia. Um, we also had a van in Armenia that drove around village to village and was doing pencil and paper-based tests, which I think is a really cool example of tailoring um, cognitive assessments to a, a culturally and locally appropriate way of doing it. And then we had in Japan and the U.S. pharmacies, community-based pharmacies doing um, digital cognitive assessments as well. So we saw a lot of really interesting ways of, of systems, whether they be primary care or community pharmacies, um, sort of reaching patients in, in different ways and using new types of tools that, that would really help them to do that. Wonderful. And with the pharmacies, did you see an uptick at all of just analyzing what people are taking? Because I know so often there can be contraindicators, you know, and they just don't mix well. And the pharmacist picks those up in two seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a, it's an excellent question. I, um, because I think in the pharmacy programs, 
when they found potential cognitive issues, they would refer to a physician. Um, but I do know I was at the CDC last year and there was a specialty pharmacist who gave a presentation and he had a lot of photos from home visits of people's houses and the amount of pills and so forth that um, he took photos of that sort of linger around in people's houses and the degree to which medication can actually be an issue that, um, you know, there may not be a cognitive issue. It may be a medicine issue is a very real thing. And my parents are in their seventies themselves as are my partners. And so certainly um, when we go home and visit, I'm always curious of what's around and there's a lot more medication in the house than, than is being taken. So. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. And it's also interesting um, just like the dehydration factor too of, you know, people dealing with incontinence. And so then they don't drink because they don't want to have an accident. And I mean, there's so many things that can be changed to, to get rid of some of these symptoms. But I also think sometimes, you know, when they hang around too long, then, you know, it, it can lead into other things as well too. Um, you know, when you get that depression, when you get that isolation, you know, all of those types of things. And again, I'm, I'm no scientist, I'm not a medical doctor, but I've just seen and heard it so often, you know, with people that it's just kind of that roller coaster, you know, down and they don't, they don't come back up again. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that the majority of our programs did is as they were doing cognitive assessment, um, actually doing tests for reversible causes at the same time. So you're you're very correct that issues like medication, but also dehydration or, you know, different um, STIs can be an issue as well. Um, and so making sure that we're testing for are there cognitive issues that actually have very easy selves that are... Um, mm-hmm. That, that are quite manageable. And so I, I think that's really a, an important part of, of those screening programs. Yeah, the sleep, the diet. What are the biggest challenges that you see facing this whole issue? Um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of complexity, I think, for, for health systems to put these new tools in place. So I think often in the U.S. in particular, um, we're lacking things like billing codes that would make it easy for physicians to do this. And so um, if I'm a physician and I want to bill my time to do this sort of thing, uh, you know, first of all, my time is mostly paid for me to practice medicine, not for me to figure out the administration of my clinic. So that that's pretty challenging. And then there are a lot of administrative hurdles for, for why it's challenging to actually do these tests in primary care. So I, I think that that's one. I think a second thing is um, health systems are really good at and oriented to improving care in areas like oncology and metabolic health, where we provide care today, it could work better. We maybe have new technology coming in and, and we can improve the way we're already doing something. But brain health is different. Brain health, we often just lack the basic capability to do it. We're not having a lot of conversation. And so for systems to tackle it, it's a different set of skills to figure out how do we just start a first program and just get this in practice. And so um, one of the things that we did is we worked really closely with our site leaders to create what we call a blueprint. So we used human-centered design. So we spent a lot of time on a monthly basis with them and then bringing them together in person a number of times over the study and really dug into what were the big challenges you faced in running your program 
what resources were really helpful in overcoming those challenges? What resources did you actually have to build to do this better um, as a result of, of running the study? And so we spent a couple of years going back and forth with them, sort of building this website, um, which you can find at um, dacblueprint.org. And so we really wanted to make a, a really practical resource for them that was sort of designed with them, with their input, and was really guided. If we had to run this program again, what would we do differently? And what would what would the recipe be? And what would the steps? And so, um, you know, we're optimistic and really hopeful that the more we get exposure and run programs like this, if we're really able to translate that knowledge um, that physicians are sort of gaining in running programs like this and make it accessible to other systems, it just means not ever, no one's going to have to reinvent the wheel every time they want to do something like this. So we think there's a lot of power in people um, learning from each other and convening people in communities of practice around um, how, how to run these sort of brain health programs. Wonderful. I know CMS is, you know, coming out with a program and the clinics and hospitals have all gotten on board so far and signed up. And then they're supposed to have the ability to partner with communities, um, projects uh, that can assist in terms of providing other types of care. And I really hope that that happens and that they don't just keep all the money to themselves. Because I think there's a big difference between the medical and academic model and the in the trenches model that can really complement one another and can bring people together and and give them the support that they need and um, make the connections. Where do you think we go from here? Um, keeping our fingers crossed and still having these conversations and pushing forward? Any or is there any one direction that you're thinking? Well, I think you know. Thinking about going back to the 13-year-old version of my of myself and my family sort of going through this with my grandfather, I, I think we're at a much more optimistic time than we were 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think it's heartening to see new diagnostics emerge. It's heartening to see um, health systems figuring out how to make this stuff accessible to patients and families. I think it's really exciting, um, our understanding of the power of risk reduction as well as early treatments and, and more clinical trials where we're already starting to see some success in treatment. So I, I think there's a lot of really great stuff here. Um, I think, um, you know, for me, making sure that we have a policy environment that is helping to make sure that health systems can really put these new discoveries, whether they be diagnostics or treatments, into real world systems quickly is really important. Um, and then I think also in the sort of clinical community, you know, we need to make sure that we're developing education that helps clinicians do this stuff really well. Um, but we need to also make sure that what works from, a, you know, from health system operations and how health systems just do this stuff, that we're really, as a community, sharing our resources and sort of trying to not duplicate efforts and make sure that we're being really efficient with that stuff. And you know, as a scientist, that our research is usable, that it's not just peer review publications, but that we're actually making tools that we can hand to a physician or a, a health system leader, and we'll give them a blueprint of what they should do differently in their system. So I think for my team, we're really focused on very practical science that's rigorous and that is really focused on making tools that actually will make a difference in health systems. I love that. I, I, practical is good, you know, something that can actually be applied and understood and 
you know, get up and running, you know, uh, sooner than not um, with the pa- with the pace of everything these days. Well, we need to wrap up here, Tim, but I am just so thrilled uh, to have talked with you today. Uh, Tim McLeod is the director for the Healthcare uh, System Preparedness Project with the Davos Alzheimer's Collaboration. And like always, I ask our listeners to please be a giver of hope like, click, and share, not because I'm chasing numbers. That's not who I am at all. But there are people in your sphere, family, friends, co-workers, people that you don't even know (laughs) that are attached to you on social media that need to hear this conversation. And the more we can push information out, the more likely someone's going to grab it when they need it, because this is an uncomfortable conversation for people to have. Um, There's so much denial out there and we need to make it easier. We need to make people feel that they, um, that they truly are, are supported and their, their voice is important to hear. So again, I appreciate our audience in, in helping us uh, build the community we have here with Alzheimer's Speaks. I do want to give out um, the Davos uh, Alzheimer's Collaborative um, website, which is, and this is all in the show notes, but it's the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative.org. They are also on YouTube and you can see them on LinkedIn as well. And if you have any questions, just, you know, head over to the site. I'm sure there's a contact button there that you can um, reach out to them. But what fascinating work. Um, again, Tim, thank you for sharing your time with us today. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, we're, we're really appreciative of the work that you do for the community as well. So uh, great to meet you and, and to spend an hour chatting. Thank you. Hey, everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.